0: I had that into my message
1: uh, tonight as well. Uh, I'm going to be reading from Joshua chapter three. You guys can turn there, which is the crossing of the Jordan River. It's a uh, Sunday school little thing that I feel oftentimes is forgotten. Now we go through the whole chapter, but I only have three points I'm going to go in. and I believe Rod is also going to uh, be saying something on Joshua. So I'll read the whole chapter, and it reads, And Joshua rose early in the morning, and they removed from Shittim, and came to Jordan. He and all the children of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. And it came to pass after three days that the officers went through the oath, and they commanded the people, saying, When ye see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests... The Levites bearing it, then ye shall remove from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about two thousand cubits by measure. Come not near unto it, that ye may know the way by which ye must go. For ye have not passed this way heretofore. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke unto the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass over before the people. And they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. And thou shalt command the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When ye are come to the brink of the water in Jordan, above uh, Jordan, ye shall stand still in Jordan. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither. Sorry. Oh, no problem. No problem. Uh, come hither. I've totally lost my verse. I was on (laughs) Um, nine. Okay, I'll restart at verse nine then. (laughs) And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you. And that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Hivites, and the Perizzites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jubasites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth passes over before you into Jordan. Now, therefore, take you twelve men out of the tribes of Israel, and take uh, out of Israel out of every tribe a man. And it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the water of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon a heap. And it came to pass, when the Lord removed from their tents to pass over Jordan, and the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as they that bare the ark were come unto Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water, for Jordan overfloweth all of his banks all the time of the harvest, that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon a heap very far from the city Adam, that is, beside Zaretan, and those that came down toward the sea of the plain, even the salt sea failed and were cut off, and the people passed over right against Jericho. And the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on the dry ground in the midst of Jordan. And all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until the people were passed clean over Jordan. Let's just pray to the Lord for um, guidance. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that everyone here made it tonight safely, and we uh, pray that you just be with me, as well as our brother Rod, as we uh, prepare the message Lord Jesus and speak, that you speak through us, and that everyone in the audience has open hearts as well. Thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, I said three points. So, point number one, I'm going to start with verse one. I'm just going to read the, the very beginning. And Joshua rose early in the morning rose early in the morning. He had a willingness uh, to do the Lord's work. You know, oftentimes I think, when I think of another person in the Bible uh, who, you know, first thing they did in the morning was the Lord's work. I think of Abraham when he had to sacrifice Isaac. And he says, he rose early in the morning to sacrifice his son, you know. One of the first things we should do in the morning, as we say all the time as Christians, is, you know, We should read a chapter in the Bible even before we get up, you know. You know, you got to be willing to do the Lord's work or nothing's going to happen. Just to give you guys kind of a little humor uh, while I'm up here is uh, yesterday when I got home from work about, I want to say somewhere around 530, I was hungry. And so I got home and I asked my mom what was for dinner. My mother looked at me and she said, um, whatever you can find. There's leftovers in there. All you got to do is put them on a plate. Put it in the microwave and do it. Now, I was hungry, so there was a need there for me to do something, but I didn't have the willingness to go get it from the microwave, go put it on a plate and put it in the microwave. And so, if my mother didn't eventually do that for me, I would have been hungry all night. That's kind of the, the willingness there. So, uh, that's my first point. So, point number two. Uh, We're going to go down just to verse 6. I don't want to read there again. Um, So verse 6 reads, And Joshua spoke unto the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass before the people. And they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. So, uh, obviously, Joshua is not the Lord, but he was their leader, as the Lord is our leader. Uh, You know, we have this book, as guidance and it's his word and you know there's a lot of things it says in here and we need to follow them you know there's that Sunday school song that I always sing with my inside my house the O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E obedience is the very best way to show that you believe you know um, Christians, born again Christians are held to a higher standard than the rest of the world and everyone's watching And it's important that we as Christians set the example that is given in this Bible as well as the laws given uh, in the civil matter as well. So my third point, as this is kind of flying by here, I'm going to read uh, from 14 to 17, so I'll read it. And it came to pass when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan and the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, And as they that bear the ark were come unto Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water, for Jordan overfloweth all of his banks all the time of harvest, that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon a heap very far from the city Adam, that is, beside Zeraton, and those that came down toward the sea, Of the plain, even the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people passed over right against Jericho. And the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. So I kind of have two mixed in points in these last four verses, but you know, this was. A harvest, as it says. So the river was flowing the fastest it would be flowing all year at this point. And so, you know, theoretically, these people probably could have waited a season and easily passed over this water, right? Now, just to give you a personal example, um, a couple years ago at Yosemite, I want to say it's roughly three years ago now, um, I remember the water was flowing pretty good up at Yosemite, though. I wanted to pass from one side of Vernal Falls to the other side. And I know it's with Marius, I want to say Andrew McKay might have been there as well. But I wanted to go from one side to the other side. And now Marius, who I don't believe is here tonight, um, not saved. I know we didn't pray before we did it. We had faith in ourselves that we could pass over from one side to the other side. Don't get me wrong, we did. But it was dangerous. You know, it was probably something we shouldn't have done. And if we were going to do it, we should have... You know, hopefully, relied on the Lord as opposed to these people who had it way easier. It's dry ground to pass this through this water, but you know, these people could have waited. As oftentimes, a lot of people think that you know, I want to get saved, but I don't want to do it now. I'd rather wait. You know, I said I was going to tie uh, the Agrippa passage in Acts twenty six twenty eight to my message today, and. You know, if you don't accept him now, you don't know your last heartbeat, and that could be on the drive home after tonight or whatnot, but, you know, the time to do things is now. Um, just going along with those last four verses, um, the unbeliever has to take a leap of faith. You know, one, uh, the example of that, I heard from a different speaker, a pastor um, about, you know, an unbeliever not being able to take a leap of faith that I, find, that I thought was very interesting, and so I'm going to use the same example, is a lot of people say they can't have faith to do things now and then be repaid in the future. And so his counter example to that was, you know, everybody has to go to work, and you go to work for a week at a time knowing, having faith in your boss, that he will pay you after you work, Right? But people can't have faith in the Lord now, knowing that when they die, they will go to heaven. I thought that was a very interesting point, that they can't use it in a personal level nearly as much. Also, this speaks to the believer as well. You know, you have to have faith. The Ark of the Covenant in this passage um, symbolizes Christ. We've got to have our eye on the Lord throughout our days, keeping a distance, and then, you know, relying on him to meet our daily needs. And that was it. And now I'll hand it over to Mr. Rod Chance. Thank you.
0: Well, when Will showed me what he was going to be speaking on, uh, I looked at the chapter, and I thought, boy, there's some things that go along with what I'm going to be speaking on. So one of the worst things I think we can do is to step on a brother once he's been up here and had uh, discussed what he saw and what he gleaned out of scripture. So I'm not going to do that. We're going to take a different avenue, uh, just a few verses. But in verse 8, it goes along with the thought of where I'm coming from you shall moreover command the priests who are carrying the ark of the covenant saying when you come to the edge of the water of the Jordan you shall stand still in the Jordan no big deal there standing in the water right shouldn't be a big issue verse 15 says toward the end Jordan overflows all its banks All the days of the harvest. That puts a little more light on verse 8. Stand still in water that is overflowing. Verse 17, where it says the riverbed was dry. Those are the three just I want to look at. Number one, how could anybody stand still in water that is overflowing? I have an experience that I've talked about a little bit before where I was in a flood control channel and I lost my footing. The water was only about two feet deep. This says stand still in the overflowing water. Now if we consider what we've seen on some of the floods back east and when the water is overflowing, you might have 6, 8, 10, 15 feet of water. I was in 2 feet of water. 2 feet of water is 21 pounds of pressure behind you. So these people are told to go stand in something that has at least 21 pounds of pressure. My thoughts are on what we know and what God knows. Bob talked about that a little bit today with um, uh, an omniscient God. He knows everything. I knew when I was swept down the river and got caught by a rope and I was bending over it, I knew I would die at that particular time. We were in the water looking for a kid who was floating. He'd floated at least three miles. We didn't know where he was at this point. I knew at that point I was going to die. Now, since you're listening to me tonight, It kind of lets you know how much we really know about our life and about what is going to happen to us. We don't know a lot. The uh, riverbed, also when I was in it and when my feet were in it, there was about six inches of mud. We are told here that the riverbed was dry in verse 17. That is impossible. It's impossible for us to understand. It's not impossible for God to handle that situation. Now one of the interesting things that it says in Joshua 3.5 is that God will uh, provide a wonder tomorrow. This day they go in, the water stops immediately. Now an explanation from some people is that there was an earthquake upstream. Well, if there was an earthquake upstream, that's fine. God could do that. But water would go down slowly, water wouldn't stop. The water bed, the river bed, would be muddy, it wouldn't be dry. God did provide a wonder. He stopped the water immediately to where they could go through, just like in Moses' day. And the, water bed, the river bed was dry. From our thoughts, that's impossible. We don't know how that could have happened. God knew, and how did he know, when they put their foot in the water, that everything would stop? It's because it's God's timing. So my thought on the chapter is to go into uh, looking at uh, the fact that God knows. God knew when they were going to put the foot in the water. God knew when the water was going to stop, and God knows how the water, uh, the riverbed, I don't know why I say waterbed, the riverbed was dry so that they could walk across it. I, for one, can give you the example, it's impossible as far as we are concerned. As far as God is concerned, nothing's impossible because he knows all things. If we go to, uh, we'll turn to a few chap- or a few verses, others I'm just going to read to you and write them down if you want or listen to the tape later and look them up, but I'm going to give examples of what in scripture God knows. Then we're going to go to the New Testament and uh, New Testament on, on God, but uh, what Jesus knows, what we can give as an example there. You don't need to turn to this one, but Mark four twenty-two says nothing is hidden from God. That's important. We need to remember that as we go through these uh, the study tonight. Nothing is hidden from God. In Psalms, we can turn to that. Psalm sixty-nine five. Again, we'll do a lot of one verse study. That can cause trouble. But what I'm looking at is the pattern that is there. Psalm 69.5 says, O oh God, it is you who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. There's nothing we can do that is hidden from God. And here it says our folly. He knows the good things we do but he knows the bad things we do also. We don't have to tell him about them, he knows them. Just like putting a foot in the water, he knew when that was going to happen, the exact time. When we pray, and I've brought this up a lot of times on Wednesday night, do we really think we're letting God know about a need that he doesn't know about? He knows about all of our needs. He knows about what we do right, he knows about what we've done wrong. We don't need to turn to it again, but Psalms forty-four twenty one says God knows the secrets of our heart. In Genesis one thirty one, the reason he knows these things is because he made them. He made everything. He knows what's going to happen. Genesis 1:31 says, God saw all he had made, and it was good. He knows what he created, it is good. Let's look at Genesis 2:17. You would think I'd find that quicker, wouldn't you? Genesis 2.17, God says, But from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. The verse right before that, God commanded man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, except. He's made it pretty clear, and there's not a lot of uh, lawyer gobbledygook with 15 pages. He says you can eat of these trees, of this one, don't eat, and that's all he said, don't eat of that tree. If we look at one, we look at the serpent, how crafty he is, and how he turns around what God said to what he wants and how he mixes up Eve and then Adam in a few words. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field with the, uh, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which in the middle of the garden God has said, you shall not eat from or touch it or you will die. We look at half-truths. A half-truth is a lie. A lie is a sin. If we're guilty of one sin, we're guilty of all sin. What did Eve say here and change? We can't touch it. God didn't say that. She has added to what God said. We need to be very careful when we're going through Scripture, when we're witnessing with others, that we don't add to Scripture. Look at it, say it the way it is, repeat it, <clears throat> but don't add to that. Going through further in the story, we know that in verse 4. <clears throat> Satan goes against God and says surely you won't die adds a question in verse 5 he says you will be like God so there's another half truth of here's what you need to do and don't do this whatever. he's confused everything instead of going back and thinking what was said they end up making a choice Adam and Eve their choice is Is God lying to us or is Satan lying to us, the the serpent? They choose the serpent. With that, they gain knowledge that they didn't need to have. Life was pretty good for them. All of a sudden, in verse 8, they hear God coming. In verse 22, man has become like us, Lord Jesus Christ and God, with knowledge of good and evil, knowledge they weren't supposed to have. In verse 9, God calls out and says, where are you? Do we really think that God didn't know where they were? Where are you? In verse 11, who told you you were naked? In verse 13, what is it that you have done? Questions, questions, questions. God knows the answers to these questions. But he's calling attention. What ends up happening is the result of sin is shame and fear. He, or Adam immediately says the woman who you gave me caused all this. He's not only blaming the woman he's blaming God. The woman you gave me caused this. Eve talks about the serpent. Well the serpent said in verse 13 so she's blaming someone else also. We don't I see this at work or I saw it at work In the modern-day situation, young ones do not take responsibility. Somebody else had to do it. Somebody else has to pay for it. Somebody else is responsible for it. There's nothing in the me, me, me situation. That started way back with Adam and Eve. Maybe it's something I just didn't see in the past, but it's definitely here now. Adam and Eve started it. It's your fault, God not my fault. Even though you told me and I changed it, it's your fault. The result of all this was in verse 24, man was pushed out, sent out of the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 4, we see more questions. Verse 9, God asked Cain, where is Abel? He knows exactly where Abel is. He says, what have you done? In verse 10, God knows, but he's making an example of making a point here. God uh, God says that Abel's blood is crying to him from the ground. He knows because the blood of Abel has already told him, plus he knew what was going to happen anyhow with that. In Matthew 6, 8, it says, your father knows what you need before you ask. Again, the knowledge that God has. If he knows these things, why should we have to go to prayer to pray that it doesn't happen? He knows it's going to happen. Why do we have to go to prayer? In prayer, we acknowledge our need and dependence on Him. We need to call these things to His attention. It recognizes and it makes us have more knowledge of what we've done, what we can see there. Turn to Matthew nine four. Just there's many, many other verses that show what God knows. We're just going to touch on a few and then the same thing with the Lord Jesus Christ. On Matthew 9, 4, and Jesus knowing their thoughts. Knowing their thoughts. Uh, In this, in uh, 4 through 8, uh, in verse 8, they were amazed. They were awestruck at what they had seen. But we know that the scribes Uh, declare man, or that Jesus declared man's sin forgiven. And they go after him with this. He didn't hear what they were saying, but he knew their thoughts. He knows what was going on. In 1225 And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them and he gives examples again they haven't said it but he knows where they're coming from and he, he gives uh, different thoughts, different situations, parables telling them and trying to make them understand not just why he knows well they're not even looking at that he knew our thoughts we didn't say it that's not addressed in scripture here but he knows what they're thinking he's given them answers to all the different things they're thinking in Matthew 16 verse 8 through 11 but Jesus aware again he knows what's going to happen he knows the situation and he knows that the apostles are even though they had just fed thousands from nothing He explains the situation to them. Each time the least amount or the lesser amount that God is given to work with, that the Lord is given to work with, He has more left over. So He's aware of their thoughts here. In Matthew 26.10, again I'm not going to get into a lot of depth, I'm just trying to get a point across of the knowledge of our Savior, the knowledge of the father 2610 but Jesus again being aware having knowledge of what was being said by the disciples in 2621 as they were eating the Lord Jesus says truly I say to you that one of you will betray me knowledge of what was to come he made a shocking announcement all the apostles start is it me is it what? going through asking questions he knows who it was and he makes the comment that truly I say one will betray me in verse 46 get up let us be going for the one that betrays me is at hand they're in the garden they're talking. He knows without seeing that Judas and the group are coming. He is aware of everything that is going to happen, he's aware of the timing on it. In Mark 2 8, immediately. Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning. So before we saw that he knew, now we see he was aware. So that's where in my thoughts on aware that Jesus knows what is going to be happening. He knew their thoughts. This is proof of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark 5.30, nothing is said... Nothing is said, someone, the lady, touches his garment. And he says, who touched me? Who touched my garment? He knows exactly who touched him. In 534, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. She didn't want to be seen. But the Lord, by calling attention to this, calls attention to her and what she did. He knew who touched her by someone touching a garment, full knowledge of what is going on. In uh, Rather than turn to it, John 6.61, Jesus is conscious that His disciples would be grumbling, complaining about what's going on. Here again, He has complete knowledge, He knows what His disciples were saying. In John 6, uh, 64, it says Jesus knew from the beginning. In John 13, 1, Jesus knew the hour had come. They could not take him to the cross until he allowed it to happen. Jesus knew. In John 16, 19, Jesus knew they wanted to question him. He read their thoughts, and by his questions that he gave back to them, he revealed that they were confused about what was going to be happening, what was, they were going to end up doing. He asked questions back to them, acknowledging, you guys don't know what you're doing, you're confused here. In John 18, 4, Jesus knew all things coming upon him. Still he asked, Whom do you seek? When the Lord Jesus Christ asked a question, there was an answer coming, but he was trying to make people understand what they were doing, what they were about to do. The same part in Luke 5.22, Jesus was aware of their reasoning. And then he says, Where are you? Reasoning in your hearts. Turn to Acts one twenty four. In Acts one twenty four, they asked the Lord, the apostles, and they prayed and said, You Lord, who know the hearts of all men. They were aware that the Lord Jesus Christ knows all men's hearts, knows all things. Have you ever thought that I'm glad that other people are not aware of something I have done? Better yet, is there a practice in your life that you think, boy, I would not do this in front of this assembly of believers, or I would not do this in front of my family, or I would not do this at work. If that would be the truth, then you have said, I'm glad that others are not aware of something I do. I'll give you one of my problems is driving on the freeway. I'm probably the best driver out there. And when they come in and cut me off or they do what, there's some bad thoughts going through my head. If Dave Dixon was sitting next to me in the the truck, I would try my best not to let the real me show up. We do things wrong. But you know what? that Dave Dixon's in the truck next to me doesn't mean a thing because the Lord Jesus Christ is watching what I do. He knows all things. I can't hide it. I cannot hide anything from him. So why would I be concerned about what a group of people would think of me in a particular thing? As long as, in my mind, scripture says if you practice Something. If you practice something that you perceive is wrong in God's eyes, we better stop doing that. We better try to consider uh, what should I do better so that I don't do that particular thing. Now, what I did on the driving was I had a little uh, 7th, 16th military uh, bracelet on. Well, it broke. But if I was driving and I had a thought like that, I looked down at that bracelet and said, I I shouldn't do that. It was just something to key me that I should be more tolerant of people because I'm probably not the best driver out there, and what I was mad at them, I probably just did, right? God sees everything we do. He knows everything we do. So why would we try to hide it from Him? I talked about what God knows, what the Lord Jesus Christ knows, and we'll take a few minutes as to what we should know. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as someone that has not accepted Him into our life yet, we know, we should know these things. And again, this is a portion. This is not. Every verse that's in Scripture talking about this. In John three three, and again we'll we'll turn to the ones in Hebrew. But in John three three, we should know that we must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. These are straight out of Scripture. John eight twenty four, unless you believe in Him, you will die in your sins. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if we are in Christ, we are a new creature. If we accept the Lord Jesus Christ in our life, we cannot live that old life we used to live. Whatever those sins are, we need to stop doing them. We're a new creature. Matthew 11.28, right behind me, Jesus said, Come unto me, and you will get rest. It's not what it says. I will give you rest. If we accept the Lord Jesus Christ into our life, we rely on Him to do what He has promised. In this verse, He promises to give us rest. But we have to be His child, heirs of His kingdom for that to happen. In Hebrews 2.3, In Hebrews 2.3, it says, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The gift is there for us. We need to accept it. It is a great salvation. How will we escape if we neglect that, if we don't accept it? In verse 8... You have put all things in subjection under His feet, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Our heart is being judged continually about what we think, about what we do, and how we serve Him. If you're not saved, I want to give you just an example that we saw last Friday or last Friday. A relative of Dorothy Elliott's passed away. He was 69 years old. He was a hoarder. The house was absolutely packed, him and his mother. When they were cleaning out the house, they found a will. Within that will, out of all his family members, he left everything cars, house, everything to a nephew one problem, that will had never been signed and it had never been taken to an attorney to be filed. His wishes and intentions mean nothing. Now it will be fought in a court. The family, if they argue, they may get a portion. His his thoughts and what he wanted will not happen unless everything goes perfect and that can be a year or two for that to happen he didn't take the final step to make sure that his wishes were done if you're here tonight and you have not accepted the Lord Jesus Christ into your life and you walk out this door and something happens This man had no idea he was going to be dead that night. But he was. He didn't take the last step he needed to do. If we are unsaved and we don't accept the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know when you will die. I don't know when I will die. I thought it was 40 years ago, and that didn't happen. I feel today I can live forever, and that's not going to happen. You know that I was with the fire department. I have been with many people as they took their last breath on this earth. Some had a period of time that they could make a profession of faith. Others, they had one breath and it was over. If your thought is, you know what, I think this is true. I think the Lord Jesus Christ did what the scripture says. And I want him to be in my heart. Unless you've taken that final step and accepted him, then you're just like this will that was never signed. It doesn't mean anything. When we meet him and he says, I never knew you, It's because he never knew you. You didn't take the last step. In Matthew 24, 36, it says that God knows the end of time for everyone. He's the only one that knows. We don't know. In fact, let's look at that real quick. Matthew 24, 36. I read that over a bunch of times and it makes such an impression. But of the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. God knows when you will take your last breath, when I will take my last breath. None of us can guess at that. A doctor might tell you you've got uh, six months to live. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. God knows when our time on this earth is over. Uh, This morning, Jeff brought up three verses that I had to close out, but I think it's important to look at it. You don't need to look them up. Most of you know these verses. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave us His Son. But when we go on to verse 17, Jesus was not sent to judge, but to save the world. He came so that we can make that decision to accept Him as our Savior. And 18, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. He has not believed in the only begotten Son of God. If you have not made a decision to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have made a decision to reject Him. Verse 18 tells us that. A sober thought that we don't know our last hour, our last minute, our last breath. But we have made a decision if that time comes and we haven't accepted the Savior. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the time that we have tonight. Even though the air conditioning was out, we appreciate, Father, that you've brought us together here tonight. If there is one that is not saved, Father, we pray that we have touched something in their heart We know that a decision has to be made for the Lord Jesus Christ to accept us into His kingdom. We thank you, Father, for Will, for the work that he put into tonight, and I just thank you that he is always one to say yes when he is asked to speak. We thank you, Father, for the time that we have at this assembly, that there are so many young men that are willing to get up here and to share their thoughts on Scripture. What a blessing that is. We thank you, Father, in the name of thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.